Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Policymakers on both sides of the aisle widely recognize the need for some form of infrastructure upgrade. America's roads and bridges could, at the very least, be in better shape. And there are new needs, like widespread internet access, as well as opportunities, like smart city technology, that should be kept in mind in the Biden administration's upcoming infrastructure push. So today, I'll be discussing U.S. infrastructure policy with Rick Geddes. Rick is a visiting scholar here at AEI, where he focuses on infrastructure policy and corporate governance. He is also professor of policy analysis and management at Cornell University, as well as the director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, James. Thanks for inviting me. I want to know, for starters, what kind of shape is American infrastructure in? And I wonder if you could start by telling me, how do we figure that out? Do we look at what civil engineers say? Do we look at what we spend on infrastructure as a share of GDP? Do we compare our infrastructure to that of other advanced economies? How do we get at that answer? And can we ultimately come up with a good, a good answer that's satisfactory that can guide policymakers? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. I think uh, the answer is yes. Uh, you indicated uh, civil engineers, and there are you know many people who are in the employ of uh, the state and local governments who actually own the infrastructure. And Jim, it's very important for listeners to realize that the majority of facilities that people think of when they think of civil infrastructure are actually owned by state and local governments, probably about uh, over 90% of it. The federal government actually owns relatively little civilian infrastructure. It owns uh, military infrastructure like army bases and and Navy bases, but most of it is, is a state or local issue. Of course, there's a lot of private uh, infrastructure in the United States, like uh, private freight rail or private electric utility systems, uh, those sorts of pieces of infrastructure. But there's a lot of uh, engineers who are employed to uh, assess that infrastructure to inspect it. And there are standards for what's known as a state of good repair. And a state of good repair is pretty well defined across uh, infrastructure facilities, whether you're talking about a drinking water system, wastewater treatment system, a dam, a levy, uh, and so on. And we pretty much know the amount of money that needs to be invested in operation and maintenance in order to keep that infrastructure in a state of good repair. And we also know what we're currently spending. Uh, and that, of course, those things vary a lot across sectors uh, of infrastructure. But you know, the delta, the difference between what we're currently spending and what it needs to keep it in a state of good repair is a, a pretty good measure of um, the deferred maintenance, what we've been underspending, you know, in order to um, uh, relative to that benchmark. And again, you know, there's some types of infrastructure like heavy freight rail, where the uh, privately owned freight companies have done a pretty good job of keeping it up. Uh, into a state of good repair because they have strong economic incentives to do so. And, uh, you know, there's other areas, of course, where there might be old drinking water systems or wastewater treatment systems. Um, and other things like uh, 
uh, certain roads, bridges and tunnels, et cetera, uh, that are old and have not been kept up to a state of good repair, you know, where there's a lot of deferred maintenance. So it does uh, vary a lot across uh, sectors, Jim, but I think we have a pretty good measure of what the, uh, you know, the, the delta is in terms of underinvestment in, in uh, maintenance. So, so focusing on that part of it, uh, maintenance, is, is it we need to spend a certain amount of money now? Is that the answer? Or does it also be need to be framed uh, as we need to spend a certain amount of now and we have to make sure we keep spending a certain amount of money go into the future? It sounds like that we have a problem. We're going to spend a lot of money, problems fixed, and then we move on. But this is a constant thing that needs to be tended. Yeah, the, the, the question, the obvious question is, how did a relatively wealthy country like the United States get into this situation where we have, by some estimates, almost a trillion dollars of deferred maintenance across you know, various infrastructure sectors? And the, the answer, I think, is the way infrastructure has been procured or delivered by the state and local governments that own the infrastructure has caused them to tend to focus more on design and construction of new facilities and not the operation and maintenance of existing facilities you know, over a longer period of time. And so I think what needs to be, yes, I understand the desire to spend federal money to, to meet that gap, but I think without fundamental changes in the way that we deliver or procure infrastructure for the long term, we're just gonna get back to the same situation that we have today once the federal money is gone. And that, I think, requires a, a, a sea change in the paradigm or the perspective that this, the state and local governments have with regard to the operation and maintenance of infrastructure. That is, they need to shift from more of a, from, from a current focus on policies that have facilitated design and construction of new, new systems out to more of a long-term operation and maintenance view. And I have advocated more long-term contracts with private partners, which a lot of other countries do, uh, and that would lock them in essentially, guarantee for say 10, 15, 20 years that they are committing those funds uh, through a contract to private partners that may be experts in operation maintenance of infrastructure. And that would at least uh, uh, pre-commit the state and local governments to a particular maintenance schedule, make it harder for the political incentives to defer maintenance, which got us to this point, you know, to manifest themselves. So I think your, answer, your question is very good. And that if we just spend money, but we don't change the way we're doing things, we might end up in this situation again once the federal money runs out. Oh, so the example that you gave um, a government, um, uh, you know, hiring a private company with a long-term contract to do maintenance. That, if that's what you're saying, is, do they do that in other countries? Yes, uh, most other countries do. So, so it's just when you, it's often done. Uh, it could be for existing facilities, or it could be done on on a new facility, and that's where you you wrap or bundle design and construction with operation and maintenance into what's called a DBOM or a DBOM contract. And the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which has independent contracting authority separate from those two states, has actually done its new facilities 
under uh, uh, modern D-bond contracts. One is the renovation of LaGuardia Airport uh, terminal, uh, where they wrap that uh, design, you know, the, the renovation of the terminal physically into its operation and maintenance over time. The other is the new Gothels Bridge, uh, which goes from Staten Island, uh, uh, from New Jersey across to Staten Island. And that's another modified version of this sort of D-bomb contract. So, and they're global companies that are uh, expert, you know, in this, that expertise is not just mundane operations like resurfacing. Today, it includes a lot of uh, technology, which is another big theme that I think should be discussed a lot more is the incorporation of new and innovative technologies into the um, operation and maintenance. It could be sensors. It could be new types of concrete. It could be new types of line paint. I mean, it's, it could be smart stoplights, smart streetlights. There's a whole bunch of technologies that are proven, patented, but the state and local governments have been slow to adopt you know, for a variety of reasons. So I think that uh, one of the things we should be considering to reduce, to make sure the situation doesn't crop up again a few years down the road, uh, no pun intended, is, uh, you know, to push this sort of uh, technological adoption uh, uh, idea through these long-term uh, O&M contracts um, and give state, state and local infrastructure owners incentives to do that. Is there a reason why this uh, doing this has not been more popular in the United States among state and local governments? I think there's a couple reasons. One is just risk aversion. So, so you know, it's hit called headline risk, where you're you are a mayor, you're a governor, you might be a county executive, any person who is in charge of operating this infrastructure, is afraid of waking up tomorrow morning and seeing their utility, uh, you know, headlining the local paper. It's almost always bad news. And we've seen that recently with the, uh, the grid failure in Texas, uh, you know, with, with um, the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. We also saw it with the grid uh, problems in California that started wildfires, you know, and, and, and the Flint, Michigan water uh, case and on down the road. The, the fear is that something will trigger a shutdown of failure of the infrastructure, which of course, you know, reflects uh, terribly on the, the political leaders. And I think a lot of them, are, you know, my first answer is I think a lot of them are afraid of the new technologies. And they say, well, these old stoplights, they're hundred years old, they're on timers, they, you know, they work well and they don't have big incentives to change. The second piece of the answer, Jim, is uh, the atomized nature of infrastructure delivery in the United States. And this I hear from foreign companies that come into the United States and try to work uh, to improve U.S. infrastructure are surprised at how many sort of small towns, you know, the, the states, of course, are the states, but there's a whole lot of municipalities that are small in counties uh, that it's, it's almost uh, balkanized, right, in the sense of very, very little owners. And I think that's another reason why they just stick with the, the ways of procurement that have, you know, worked for, for 50 years. So, um, you know, those two reasons. Um, and I think the third, the third is just lack of expertise. So a lot of them are, do not, uh, they're not familiar with the new technologies. They're not familiar with these new uh, contracting approaches. And I just think that lack of knowledge makes them adverse to, you know, to trying these, these new approaches that would reduce the deferred maintenance. Are the, so currently, are the people taking care of a lot of U.S. infrastructure are these state and local government employees? 
Yes, for a lot of the heavy civil infrastructure, uh, there's there's state and local uh, employees. You know, it depends again on the, it's very specific to the situation, and it may may vary across states. But for for most of the things that I think when you talk to an average person, have some what is civil infrastructure? You know, most of the people operating this, most of the managers, are either state, local, county employees. And, you know, they've been doing business in a particular way uh, for many years. And I think the only, you know, whether in the back in the day, the, the toll takers or the people running the salt trucks and the, uh, you know, snow plows, people removing the dead animals, people doing the, the line paint, re, uh, keeping up the signage, trimming the trees away from the signage, et cetera, in many cases are, are government employees, with the exception of where. Uh, clearly, the, the, those government entities have contracted that uh, contracted that work out, and so um, you know th- this is a uh, difference I think between the United States in some ways and many other developed countries that have more of these partnerships with the private sector. The infrastructure spending has been talked about as federal dollars going to infrastructure. Could we be incorporating? you know, uh, more private sector money into this uh, into this infrastructure revamp project we're about to undertake. Is, is there a lot of that out there? And why are, if, if not, if we're not using it, why aren't we using it? The, the thing I hear almost regularly every few days, it seems like, are the trillions of dollars uh, around the world of uh, patient money. So this is not, you know, speculative investment. These are long-term patient investors who are investing institutional money, so public pension funds, private pension funds, mutual funds, insurance companies, university endowments, and so on, that are fiduciaries of, of other uh, people on wh- whose behalf they're investing the money, that are look very patient uh, investors who are looking for long-term cash flow that really want to invest in U.S. infrastructure. That's not the problem. It's not the lack of money uh, to invest, it's the lack of bankable deals or bankable uh, contracts that these private investors can invest in. And so the problem, again, it gets back to this this balkanization, I think, and the lack of of education um, to create situations where the public and the private sector can partner together to improve infrastructure. And again, the issue is is not the financing. So everything I just articulated, these are financing sources, but really it's funding. And that is where the underlying dollars are going to come from. Are you going to uh, charge a user fee you know, for the use of the road, which is what the state of Oregon is, is shifting to away from a, a state gas tax toward a mileage-based user fee? Are you going to um, raise taxes, is, is some sort of tax? to uh, pay for the infrastructure, but dedicate that money to a particular thing. And there are ways, Jim, it's, it's a misconception. People say, oh, well, the private sector will only invest in it if it's a toll road uh, you know, that, that has direct cash source. And that's false because there's plenty of contractual arrangements called availability payments arrangements, which are basically performance payments to the private sector. You know, the, the, where the road is not told or whatever the facility is, is not told, but the private partners ba- paid based on how well uh, they maintain the road or how well they operate uh, the road, the bridge, the tunnel, uh, whatever it is. And so those um, sorts of contracts 
can be adopted more widely that would attract the private sector investors into the U.S. market. The other thing, Jim, I, I do want to get back to the earlier point about balkanization or these asset owners in many cases being very small. And, and uh, some people say, well, they're so small that if they put a project out to bid, it might be, I don't know, a few million dollars, and that's not enough to attract a big company. Uh, and that's correct. But the solution to that is something that was done in Pennsylvania, uh, but has been done in other places as well, uh, called project bundling. And that is where a number of projects that are somewhat similar are bundled together into one large offering. And that is large enough and put out to bid. And that is large enough to attract uh, the private sector. So uh, one of my, the favorite example is the Pennsylvania Rapid Bridges Project. If you know about the state of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of low use rural bridges that cross over rivers and streams, and they were very old. And one option would have been for the state to repair each of those bridges itself in sequence, which would have taken a long time. But instead, the, the state packaged 550 of those uh, bridges together into one large offering and then bid that out as a bundled project. In order, and that was many billions of dollars, was able to attract global companies to come in and bid. That could be done in, in many other cases where you could, you could gather enough projects together, perhaps across municipalities, you know, that would attract the private sector. Again, the, the, the public sector needs to think a little bit more creatively and broadly about how they might change their procurement to get the private sector involved, but also to avoid this deferred maintenance problem in the future while uh, adopting the latest technologies and materials and sensors and everything else. Do we need more infrastructure of some sort? Whether it's, do we, do, do we need more roads, more bridges, dams? Water, uh, you know, do we need, uh, you know, I don't know if you consider broadband uh, infrastructure, do we need that? So should we be also be spending our money, uh, spending, uh, investing in just more infrastructure overall? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do, Jim. So I think you hit the nail on the head. So it, it depends a lot on the sector. I mean, I think um, in most cases, because of the deferred maintenance problem we touched on earlier, uh, the answer is yes. You know, they're very obviously the grid resilience of the electric grid has become uh, very important. As you have more electric cars, you integrate the transportation network, right? The, the electric vehicles with the, the power grid, you need to be more concerned about the resilience of the power grid to a whole series of, of threats. So we do need to, to spend more. But I think the big sort of new frontier is internet connectivity. And if there's ever a silver lining in the, in the uh, uh, COVID cloud, it is that we've realized that basically, you know, having all communities, both urban and rural, uh, have access to internet connectivity up to a certain level is um, critical. And that's become the way we used to think about like electricity, where every no community should be without electricity or clean water or telephones back in the day or paved roads. There was a movement to pave rural roads called the you know, farms to markets uh, kind, kind of a movement. And so, um, you know, I think we're at that point where broadband, where, where we and which, by the way, 
to deliver that service is not just one technology. You know, it's a whole series of possible technologies that could uh, play into that. But I think, you know, we're at this point where if, if we do think about spending, we would want to spend on uh, technologies, spend on policies, really, that would provide us with that universal connectivity in terms of broadband. So I think that's probably the main sector, you know, that we're looking at now, although many things like in the United States, in the eastern part of the country, there's old schools, uh, prisons are old, courthouses are old, hospitals are old. So a lot of those standalone facilities need, you know, various levels of investment, too. But I think it back to your question of, of sort of what do we need to spend money on? I think coming out of this, we're, we're going to there's a consensus that we need to spend more on broadband. Is U.S. infrastructure, as far as building new infrastructure, is it uniquely expensive to do that in the United States? And if it is, do, do regulations play any role in that? Yes, it, it is, Jim. The um, New York Times, for example, did a great study on the cost of the Second Avenue subway, which per mile, I believe, is the, the most expensive uh, infrastructure project in history around the world. It's not um, one factor that you can point to. Um, it, it's several. So, but, but I think one of the main ones is the permitting process, uh, which, which the main one is called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which wraps a whole bunch of other uh, requirements for a big infrastructure project into one process. So that's Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, Native American burial grounds, all these things that a, a large infrastructure project can affect, you need to get clearance, right? You know, permits um, to do this. And we've looked at some data. The average time, I think, is about five years to go through that. But many big projects can take a decade to get permitted. And all of that is costing money. So, all, you know, time is money in the infrastructure world. And as you're waiting for the permitting, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking and it's getting more and more expensive. So, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the factors. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of others, material costs, acquiring right-of-way, labor costs, uh, and all these other things. But I think the most immediate policy issue we could address is streamlining the environmental permitting process. Uh, do, you have, do you have any thoughts about high-speed rail? We talked a little bit about... Uh... Uh, yeah, people often just think about rail as kind of passenger rail. Obviously, rail is super important for you know, transporting goods. But do you have thoughts about whether the U.S. should have a high-speed rail system? Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. So high-speed passenger rail today, you know, we're in a different world where uh, back when, say, the transatlantic transcontinental railroad was built, it was the only way of getting across the country pretty much. But now, say, you know, in the, in the Northeast Corridor, for example, there's a whole bunch of competing modes. So if you want to get from Washington to Boston, you could drive, you could take an uh, aerop- airplane shuttle, uh, you know, there, there's other things, or you could take uh, uh, Amtrak. And so uh, the, the issue is how does high-speed passenger rail fit in with the other modes? Now, it's very much dependent on de- density of people in a particular area around the station, as well as distance. And there's some origin destination pairs, which make no sense in the United States for a high-speed passenger rail. But I've 
believe, and I've written uh, for AEI, you know, arguing that the Northeast Carter, so down to Richmond, up to Washington, Philadelphia, New York, et cetera, up to Boston is a uh, ideal uh, uh, route to show that the United States can do effective high-speed passenger rail. And you have the, the old urban core, the, the, those centers, and you have the um, density of population um, in that corridor, and you have the right of way already there where you could make, turn that into a sort of a showcase, I think, of where high-speed passenger rail you know, would work. There's a number of changes, I think, in delivery that have to take place. Uh, maybe you bid that out so that uh, it would be a concession where different com companies, including Amtrak, by the way, could bid for the right to serve that route uh, for a particular period of time, which is, again, what other many other countries do. But, um, you know, but I think that's the route where, where it would make sense. And again, the key thing is it's not a panacea. It's a new mode that fits in with a whole bunch of existing modes uh, that would work only in highly specific situations. But I think there are cases where it would work. Are there are there key, are there some other obvious cases besides that Northeast Corridor? Uh, I think there's um, may, maybe uh, Houston, Dallas is one case. Certain routes in Florida, I think, I think make uh, make sense. But again, it's hard to know, <laughs> you know, know what the market is, right? Until you until you try it, you have to discover. Uh, what the demand is through a market discovery process. But I think there's a few other routes like that, you know, that look good. But as you as you increase the distance, right, you know, from from origin to destination, it uh, you start to be dominated by air travel where, where you know, it, you're better off, you know, if it's I don't know. Uh, well, the, the San Francisco to L.A., right, that has, is served by a number of different air shuttles. And that's a pretty long distance for a passenger rail to travel. And so, so as you, that distance between the origin and the destination grows, air travel starts to dominate for whole you know, benefit cost reasons. Uh, passenger train travel is as the preferred mode, you know, particularly when, when you include the full cost. And I'm laughing because you know, sometimes the cost numbers on both the capital cost and the operating and maintenance costs you know, for a high, high speed passenger rail system can be very high. So what would you tell policymakers about incorporating autonomous vehicles into their infrastructure plan? What kind of changes would we need? I mean, at the very least, we don't want a highway full of potholes if they have cars traveling 90 miles an hour, six inches apart, right? So that's, um, you know, very important. And the answer is absolutely yes. I, I would, as the United States renovates transportation infrastructure, it should definitely be thinking about the needs of increasing autonomy, right? And it's not like we're going to throw a switch tomorrow and all the cars are going to, you know, go to be driverless cars. It's going to be a slow process where the vehicles increase in autonomy over time. You know, hopefully in the future, we'll get to, to a fleet, you know, where, where it's fully autonomous, but that's going to take a long time. But what the public sector owners can do and the interim is improve basic things about infrastructure. So, so line paint, I said. So a lot of times the, the autonomous vehicles will look, right, quote unquote, with, with cameras at the line paint to see where the vehicle sits in the lane. And so having the line paint clear, you can impregnate the line paint with reflective beads so that it, it's bright even in rain or snow and the, dri the driverless vehicle can sense where the line is. Signage, 
So just having clear new reflective signs because the, the vehicles, you know, look, look at those things as well. The other thing I've heard is that um, sometimes driverless vehicles, they're very risk averse, uh, rightly so, but they, they can't tell what a pothole is. And they'll, they'll see that pothole and they'll think it's a dangerous thing and they'll stop. So having all the, the, the road surface smooth, um, you know, smooth pavement is, is important anyway. Proper drainage so that when it rains, you know, the, the road surface drains. All these basic things about taking care of transportation infrastructure facilitate uh, the use of these autonomous vehicles. You know, they see, seem like relatively low investment. And, that, you know, there's all this talk of, of vehicle infrastructure integration where the, the infrastructure would have sensors that would emit beacons, say, in the retaining wall of an overpass, and that your car, your smart vehicle would then know the overpass is there. Yes, those are all good things to do. But I urge infrastructure owners to take care of those, the low-hanging fruit. You know, there's really basic things first. And that gets back to my, my major theme, which is changing the whole paradigm, you know, or the framework from one that's focused on design and construction out to, to improved operation and maintenance. And once you do that, and in operations, you should be thinking about driverless or autonomous vehicles as well. You know, that would facilitate that adoption over time. My guest has been Rick Geddes. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, James. It's great to be here.